The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hello, Curbsiders listeners. Thanks for joining us on our first episode of the Curbsiders Teach, our new mini-series on faculty development. I'm a regular Curbsiders producer, Dr. Molly Hoyblein, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzanovskaya. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss the art of feedback with Dr. Calvin Chow. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you tell the audience about our show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. Our new weekly Curbsiders series will be coming out weekly on Tuesdays. We'll cover topics like bedside teaching, feedback, learner mental health, and know you'll find valuable skills in this podcast series. Just like Ted Lasso says, it smells like potential in here. So let's unlock your potential to be a great medical educator. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Calvin Chow, tonight. We cover everything you want to know about giving and receiving feedback artfully. He helps us set the stage about how to really connect with learners to be able to have those feedback conversations. We discuss giving, encouraging feedback, as well as redirecting feedback. Dr. Calvin Chow, MD, PhD, is a professor of medicine at UCSF and staff physician at the VA in San Francisco. In his work with the Academy of Communication and Healthcare, He leads workshops in relationship-centered communication, feedback, conflict, and remediation in health professions education. He is co-editor of the books Remediation in Medical Education, a mid-course correction, and Communication Rx, Transforming Healthcare Through Relationship-Centered Communication. This is our first episode of the Curbsiders Teach, bringing you a little dose of medical edutainment. A reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Subscribe to the Curbsiders Teach wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this recording, Calvin. Are you okay with us calling you Calvin? Absolutely, please. (laughs) Thank you. Wouldn't have it any other way. Awesome. Well, we are so happy to have you on the show and so happy to bring uh, this mini series to our listeners to help teach more um, about education and really bring some wonderful guests. So we want to just start with some rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Um, Can you give us a one liner to describe yourself? Uh, I hate to say my age, but <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I will <laughs> just because I need to inhabit it. Uh, 57 year old gay Asian dad, internist, Die, die hard Chicago Cub fan uh, and in non pandemic times uh, spinning instructor. Wow, that is a lot going on. <laughs> Love that. I had no time. idea you were a spinning instructor. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did my body, doesn't know that anymore either. Oh. <laughs> do you have a Peloton at home? No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I decided not to do the Peloton thing. Yeah. And and just so kind of our, our listeners get a sense of as we're talking, what kind of settings do you teach in most frequently? Most, actually, almost all settings. So uh, I teach the range uh, all the way from beginning medical students all the way to th- through uh, residents, through practicing physicians, practicing providers of all kinds, both at UCSF, I'm based at the VA, and also around the country. So I have a very, very exciting 
uh, privileged position to be able to invade people's lives and uh, hopefully have them think more about what it's like to communicate more effectively and to think about feedback. Awesome. And both inpatient and outpatient? Yes. Uh, yeah. Most of the most of the nation na- national work that I do is actually it's neither inpatient nor outpatient. It's, you know, faculty development type stuff. But inpatient and outpatient teaching is what I do um, at UCSF. Yes. Awesome. Well, don't worry, Calvin. It's a welcome invasion. So just uh, <laughs> just to let you know, and we're so happy that you are uh, invading, but also uh, teaching us on this podcast. In terms of another question to for us to get to know you better, was wondering what book uh, you think every physician should read. This was a really hard one for me to consider because there are several. I would say that from a physician standpoint. The one book that I would recommend to everybody is a book called Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. I found it to be supremely helpful, both from the standpoint of being able to communicate across differences, as well as uh, through almost any conflict situation, of which feedback is one sometimes, uh, to be able to not be hijacked by one's emotions, I would say. That sounds interesting. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah. We often ask um, kind of what the best advice that you've ever received is, but since we're talking about feedback, I'm curious, what's the most impactful feedback you've received? (laughs) This is such a great (laughs) question. If you're comfortable sharing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I've been around for so long that it's hard to know what the best advice is because there's been been a ton of good advice. I, I think maybe the advice that I try to adhere to most often is one of my mentors in the past, Adina Callat, who I have uh, collaborated on um, a remediation and medical education book. She led me into thinking about our calling as healthcare providers, what it means for us to have an abiding sense of mission in what we do. Because most of what we do day in, day out is tasks and check boxes that we have to pursue and if we ultimately have that goal, that you know, why am I put on this earth? The North Star approach really allows us to think about why we do what we do, and that fires us up and keeps us going rather than being loaded down by all the burdens that we have day to day. I love that. Yeah, I think that's it's so important. I mean, to help prevent burnout and just keep you on track and and keep people working together smoothly. I think that's that's great advice. There's a um, there's a musical called Avenue Q where one of the songs is called Purpose. And even though it's tongue in cheek, it is absolutely true to have a purpose in not just life, but also professional life. That's awesome. Thank you, Calvin. I think uh, one thing we try to remind everybody is that we are all human. And so uh, we can make mistakes and we're um, receptive to hearing about them and would love to hear about what your favorite failure was and maybe what you learned from it. Again, I've been around for so long that I've made so many errors. I'm just trying to think, which one do I talk about? And I think the one I landed on, my favorite one, the one that still stays with me, even though it happened 15 maybe years ago, uh, is I was in the hospital on on ward rounds. And I was doing, maybe maybe you were there, I'm not certain. Uh, we were examining a patient who had uh, an extra heart sound, and I was listening closely, and then I pointed out to everybody in the group, and I said, look, that's a split S1. 
and everybody kind of looked at me like a little bit quizzically. And I wasn't like, I don't know why I even said what I did because the patient, like, I didn't even know split S1 is a thing. I just kind of made it up in the moment. And looking at it afterwards, the patient didn't have a right bundle branch block, didn't no reason for the split S1 and, and kind of disbanded rounds and then thought about it and thought about it and went back to examine the patient on my own and realized that's not a split S1. That must have, that must be an S4. And then the next day thinking, okay, uh, do I say that to the team? And, and I was really inhabiting a lot of shame. And so the next day on attending rounds, I said, I'm afraid that I made a teaching error yesterday. I don't want everybody to know that when I said split S1 yesterday, I think I wasn't being accurate. And then I said, I, I believe that it was an S4, and this is the reason why. And felt so vulnerable in that moment, thinking I'm, all my credibility as an attending is gone. And then I checked in with each member of the team afterwards, one by one, and everyone said to me, I'm so glad you said that because I was confused and I didn't know what to say. And just by saying that you had made an error made me feel like I don't have to be perfect. It's a, it was a big sea change for me, in, you know, growing up in medical culture, you know, 25-ish years ago, everybody was about posturing and being right all the time. And so this was a big step uh, toward being able to say I was wrong. Um, and uh, I say I was wrong a lot nowadays, and I feel really good about it. <laughs> well, I don't remember that, Calvin. So maybe it wasn't my team, but I will say the kind of unbridled humility and humanity really um, is striking for me. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. And I think we have all felt that pressure to to not get it wrong and pressure to, you know, be this higher position and always be correct. And and it helps all of us to admit our mistakes and to learn from each other. So I think that's that's very helpful. Um, should we jump into some picks of the week? Ira, did you want to share one? Totally. Thanks, Molly. So my pick of the week is actually a song that I've been listening to recently called Take My Breath uh, by The Weeknd. This, this particular song really highlights his kind of disco 70s vibe. And if somebody wants to pretend like they're in the 70s or have a pump up song for them, maybe when they're thinking about attending Calvin's future cycling classes or just, you know, walking to work or really anytime, this song has really brought joy to me and um, in my listening. And so I would, I would encourage folks to check it out. Thanks. I will take a listen. My pick of the week is actually going to be uh, the office where I work in, which is the UCSF Women's Health Primary Care. Uh, we are looking for new internists and especially a clinician educator. And I just want to say it's I've worked there for nine years now. It was my first job out of residency. And I had no idea at that point really what I wanted and how long I would be there. And the fact that I am now in this job for nine years and have no plans to go anywhere, I think really highlights the fact that it's working at UCSF has just been a really supportive environment to grow and learn and push myself in ways that I had not expected coming out of residency. So um, we will put in the show notes um, the contact information for our UCSF recruiter. So if people are interested in working in primary care, women's health, medical education, please reach out. Molly, you're so tempting here. <laughs> Careful, I can't let my division chief hear this, but yes. I, I second that. Awesome. And Calvin, we don't typically have guests uh, give picks of the week, but if there was something that you were dying to share, we would love to hear it. Uh, I will, if you don't mind. Absolutely. It, it betrays my love of musical theater 
on Apple TV, there's a show that's called Schmigadoon. I don't know if you heard of it. It is a takeoff on all of the Golden Age musicals from the 1940s and 50s. And there are little Easter eggs for anybody who is a musical theater fan throughout little snippets of uh, quotations from different musicals. It stars Cecily Strong and Keegan-Michael Key as a couple of doctors, doctor couple, who find their way into this land, this storied musical theater land, and they won't be able to leave until they find their true love. I love that. <laughs> Excuse me, Molly, while I exit to go <laughs> to go Apple watch TV. It. Yeah, exactly. Got to go find your true love. <laughs> yes, that too. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thanks, Calvin. Yeah. Hey, Curbsiders. This episode is brought to you by a brand new sponsor, Masterworks. I am so excited to tell you about this super cool new technology. So medicine is both an art and a science, and so is building a smart, diversified investment portfolio. And one way to do that is by investing in blue chip art, because unlike stocks, artwork has little correlation to the S&P 500. That means when the markets crash and stock prices go berserk, the art prices continue to surge. Lately, the Wall Street Journal called the art market among the hottest on earth, and Masterworks is the fintech, that's financial technology startup, combining art with science to let you invest in iconic paintings from artists like Picasso and even Banksy. Come on, who doesn't want to own some artwork by Banksy, even if it's just like a fractional share? So here's how it works. Masterworks uses data and technology to determine investment-grade works of art. Then they securitize them and allow anyone to invest in artwork at an affordable entry point because let's face it, most of us don't have millions of dollars hanging around to invest in artwork. So while making great art is difficult, investing in it is now easier than ever. Go to masterworks.art slash curbsiders to get started. Again, that's masterworks.art slash curbsiders. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Let's um, jump into the topic of feedback. And Ira, do you want to get us started with a case? Yes, thank you. So this is our case from Cashlack Memorial, Calvin. Avery is a new intern who is on wards while you are attending this week. They are enthusiastic participant in rounds and give clear oral presentations. Occasionally, they miss a few key details and you're not sure they fully understand the clinical reasoning behind the plan. So taking a step back, Calvin, how do you define feedback? Um, first of all, thank you for welcoming me to Cash Like Memorial. I'm really, really excited to be here. The definition of feedback that I like the most is uh, something that was, th they spent 13 pages defining in one paper <laughs> in uh, the journal Medical Education about 13 years ago. And it's a definition that I have memorized, and not because I memorize definitions, but because I find it really good. And it is specific, non-judgmental information and given with intent to improve performance. And each one of those pieces in that definition is so important. We talk about specificity and feedback all the time. Non-judgmental is, I think, one of the hardest things in life not just in feedback, but in life, because as human beings, we immediately go to judgment. We see something that we disagree with, 
or behavior that we don't like. And we immediately go to this place of, oh, God, that person is so terrible, or I can't believe they're doing that. So it's not not having judgment. We can't stop having the judgments. But when we are having these feedback conversations, it's about delivering those words in as non-judgmental a way as possible. Non-judgmental. It is a always aspirational, never fully attainable. And then given with intent to improve performance is this thing that to always communicate to our learners that we have their back, that we are always there for them, for them to get better. Because really, truthfully, we want them to get better. One day they may be our doctors. <laughs> and so we want them to be the best possible and we want to help them get there. So I think all aspects of those definition are things that I try to remember and try to adhere to. And in thinking about Avery in particular, would there be any other principles you want to highlight, Calvin, that are involved in an effective feedback dialogue with Avery specifically or thinking broadly? So one of the things I loved what you just said, Ira, was feedback dialogue, because oftentimes you'll hear people say the words giving feedback. I need to give feedback to that learner. Feedback is actually much more than giving feedback. It's a feedback conversation. It's a dialogue between two people. There is a lot of literature uh, in medical education over the last three or four years, which talk about feedback being part of the educational alliance. And when we think about educational alliance, how can we ally with somebody if we're only giving feedback unidirectionally? So this idea of dialogue both ways um, is something that's absolutely central in my mind to effective feedback. And why I'm trying to strike the words, give feedback out of my vocabulary, I know I will slip up during this podcast and I will say at some point, give feedback, and then I will try to recover by saying, have feedback conversation or feedback dialogue, because that is the root of allowing our learner to know that we're in participation, that we're participating with their learning and we want with intent to improve performance. So from Avery's standpoint, if, we've noted, if we're noticing that she's missing details and maybe her clinical reasoning isn't as exact as we'd like it to be, those are judgments that we're making. And so the idea is how can we formulate the relationship with Avery such that she is trusting what we're saying and wants to improve, knows that we are backing her so that she is motivating herself to improve rather than us making this external judgment and making her jump a high bar because we want her to. It's really about her developing her motivation to do so. The difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset, fixed mindset being, I need to do this because someone else is telling me to, growth mindset being something that is internal. I am wanting to do this for myself and growth mindset always uh, wins over fixed mindset in this particular case. Now, in order to formulate that trusting relationship, it has to start from the very beginning, from the time that we meet Avery to begin with. So if we've already noticed these things and we're about to have a feedback conversation with her, it's already too late. We should have done something at the very, very beginning of the relationship, and that is to set up the expectation for feedback. And that feedback is this expression of committing to this relationship and wanting her to be the best that she can be. So at the beginning of every single relationship that I have with a learner of any kind, 
this may sound like it's onerous, and the more you do it, the easier it becomes, is um, I'll have really a brief conversation is all it takes to start to make that trusting um, relationship begin to flower. So as I'm meeting a learner for the first time, so Avery, I'm, the first time I'm, I'm meeting Avery on service, for example, I'll just say, Avery, I want to spend a moment with you, maybe today, if today is a post-call day, maybe tomorrow, getting a sense of what is important to you in terms of your learning and what your goals for learning are. And as I, just those two questions, want to get to know you a little bit and what your goals are, just those two questions go a long way in developing that trust between the two of us so that she starts to believe that any feedback that I quote give to her is meant to improve her performance. And I think it's it's so helpful to get those goals because it really helps you think about what you're looking for when you're kind of watching their performance and um, thinking about how specifically to to focus on what they are interested in hearing and what they're motivated to make progress on. So I think those are, are great tips. Uh, when you're preparing to, so you, you've kind of set the stage a little bit at the beginning that you're going to continue to have these conversations throughout working together. How do you as a teacher prepare over time to, to give these conversations? And, and do you do anything to kind of make it a deliberate practice? It is completely a deliberate practice. I would say it's a similar practice as when I'm about to see a patient. I would never think about seeing a patient without pre-rounding understanding what's in their chart uh, so that I have a sense of where I might want to go in encounter with the patient. I need to have go I need to have goals for that encounter. I can't just go in and say, hey, hey, you know, just shooting the shooting the breeze with the patient. And in the same way, these relationships that we have with our learners equally as important. If we think it is important to have goals or a direction when we're in patient care, that exact same thing applies to our learners. And so if I'm seeing a patient for urgent care and I've never met the patient before, I'm only seeing them once, I still am looking through their chart and getting a sense for what my goal might be or what their goal might be, get a sense of both of our goals for that for that brief relationship. And in the same way, when I am supervising a resident or a nurse practitioner trainee for just one afternoon or maybe just one precepting encounter, I will go up to them ahead of time and just say, before we start, my name is Calvin. I'm going to be your preceptor today. I'm really excited to work with you. I want to get a sense for it. if there's something that you're working on right now that I can help you with through the course of this afternoon or this precepting encounter. It only takes a couple of seconds and it breaks open the hierarchy that is inherent in these relationships. And it also encourages all of our learners, no matter what stage they're in, I, I still try to do this myself, to have goals. Because there is never a time as healthcare providers when we have arrived, we're all, there's always something more to understand. There's always something more to work on. And so even though I've taught about feedback for almost 20 years, I'm continuing to learn. And uh, this humility that you talked about earlier in the conversation is something that I have to take along with me. If I lose my humility as a healthcare provider, as, uh, as an educator, then it's all over. We, we have to remain humble because there's no way that we know everything there is to know. 
and yeah. Molly, your your child thinks the same. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, he's uh, being calmed in the background. Um, I, I love that analogy of sort of pre-rounding. Um, something that I have thought about but have not actually started doing yet is you know, since I work with a number of different learners in different settings, and sometimes I see them and then I don't work with them again for a few weeks um, since I work in the outpatient setting. Um, do you ever kind of like keep a, almost a chart on the learner of like writing down their goals and writing down specific things that you've seen and things that you want to continue to look for? I think uh, if I'm going to have a learner in continuity, absolutely. So uh, both uh, learners that I am assigned to in the outpatient setting over the course of a year, I will keep track of their goals on my on my iPhone notes pad just write down what their goals were and follow from week to week. Uh, on the inpatient setting, it is I have an index card because I'm old. I still use index cards. And on the index card is listed all of the learners on the service and their cell phone numbers and their goals. And then when I have ongoing feedback conversations with them throughout the course of when I'm on inpatient or outpatient, I'm sitting down and saying, last time we had an extensive feedback conversation, your goals were this. I'm wondering how you're doing with those and if new goals have arisen for you. Yeah. I would love to see what my card said from 2013. <laughs> I think I still have it, you're right. <laughs> Thanks, got a big file folder somewhere up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I, I noticed that you said, Calvin, that I think was really um, hitting home for me was you, you mentioned kind of this intentional focus on the relationship with the learner. And I often think about a therapeutic alliance with the patient and kind of aligning and, and really uh, communicating in a relationship-centered way. But making translating that alliance to the learner, I think, is really poignant. And I wonder... Are there any specific other practices you do aside from sounds like pre-rounding and keeping a card with the goals of the learners? Are there any other skills or practices you have that kind of allows you to continue to build that relationship and that alliance? It's such a great question, Ira. Uh, I would say that the relationship between a faculty person and a learner is parallel process almost exactly to that between healthcare provider and patient. So in caring for our patients, is anything that we do to care for our patients applies to when we're caring for, in quotation marks, our learners. So having a chart, you know, it's not as extensive as electronic health records, but having some kind of log where I have a sense of what the learner's goals have been introducing myself to the learner in the very beginning of a relationship. I can't tell you how many times I've heard students of mine say, you know, I'm on X and X or Y clerkship and they don't even know who I am. That to me is a breaking cardinal rule number one. You need to know who your learners are if you want them to learn. Uh, otherwise they're just they're just tourists and we don't want our learners to be tourists. We want them to actually be learning. Um, listening to them with open heart and with attempts to understand rather than to correct, using empathy liberally when necessary. And when we are doing teaching or having feedback conversations, um, thinking about small chunks rather than big downloads. Sorry, I'm downloading right now. <laughs> and, uh, and having some way of doing a teach back at the very end so that we know where our learners are uh, at the conclusion of a feedback conversation. 
And this teach back or take home point at the very end, I think that is the key because uh, adult learning theory suggests that if a learner states their take home point, they're much more likely to do it than if we tell them what their take home point ought to be. Um, it's again, this, this idea of internal motivation or growth mindset. Uh, I'm more likely to do it if I, if I voice it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I could practice teach back really quick and just say that what I heard you say is important skills or uh, practices to consider is liberal empathy use, kind of developing the relationship almost in the same way we do with patients and making sure that learners don't feel like tourists in their own learning environment, but somebody who's really cared about and imparting the teach back and kind of setting up maybe even a a goal at the end of kind of the feedback conversation. I loved how you added the goal at the end uh, because the teach back is, or the take home point, however you want to call it, is a goal for the next time. And so if you have these rounds of feedback conversations, then the take home point from the prior conversation becomes the goal for the next conversation. And it is an ongoing development. So exactly right. And in in thinking about a learner who's having trouble identifying goals or in addition to the learner's goals, how do you kind of think about helping a learner choose goals? Do you look at kind of the curriculum guide and sort of the the specific goals and, you know, set points of what learners are supposed to get out of a rotation? Or are you just kind of keeping in mind from all your experience working with prior learners, like I've seen this person at this level perform this way, this is what I would expect out of you? How specifically do you kind of calibrate that? That, that's a, a really important question, Molly, and I think we could probably talk for hours and hours about yes. <laughs> what, what goals mean. Uh, you know, I think about the learning ladder. So people start out in unconscious incompetence. They don't know what they don't know. And so learners at that stage may not have a goal that is relevant because they don't know what they're getting into. Uh, and sometimes in those instances, it may be helpful to enumerate a goal with them ahead of time. Rather than saying, this is what your goal should be, looking at a list of the course objectives, for example, and saying, which of these appeals to you? Let me help you get there on that one. And then it becomes an internally motivated goal for them. They have identified for themselves. It's not that I am ignoring the other objectives or ignoring the importance of the other ones. I'm wanting them to claim something for themselves that they're working, that they themselves are working toward so that they feel a sense of accomplishment. And then when there are other things that I want to add, then it becomes a conversation. I'm helping you with your goal and I have a goal. I'm helping you with your goal. So you help me with this goal sort of thing that becomes a, a partnership terms of these in, in terms of developing expertise so that's unconscious incompetence and then as the learning as the learners progress up the ladder through conscious incompetence they know what they don't know then that's when they're able to enumerate their own goals and then conscious competence when they're getting more practice and they're even more able to enumerate their goals and then up to unconscious competence, which actually I think is very, very interesting stage uh, because if you're if you have a lot of experience in anything, like for me it's clinical reasoning, I uh, I, 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 I am not as exact about 
the development of my schemas as I once used to be, because now they're more automated, uh, that if I am lazy about it in an unconscious competence kind of way, and I don't develop goals to continue to get better, then I can just enter this space of being an automaton where I'm not really thinking, I'm just kind of doing, and then I'm not improving. So it's, as I was saying earlier about the ongoing humility in all parts of what we do, if I am not, if I feel like I'm, I've solved something, then there's something wrong with me. So in terms of getting back to your original question, Molly, in terms of enumerating your goals, uh, helping learners enumerate their own goals, uh, it, it's always instructive to me when I ask a learner for their goals, because if they have um, talked about their goals before, I can I can tell because they can be formulated in a smart way. You know, let me see if I get this right: specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. So if if a learner comes to me and and gives me a smart goal. If I've never seen them before and they say, you know, by the end of clinic, I'd like to, um, I have a patient coming up who has COPD and I want to make certain that I can hear the difference between normal lung sounds and the abnormal lung sounds that, that a patient with COPD has, that, that's pretty good. But if a learner says, oh, I just want to get better, <laughs> then, then, I may, <laughs> then I might probe more, what is it that you want to get better at? Is there something that you're struggling with that you want to make certain that you make incremental progress with today? So depending on their initial formulation of goals, you can do more probing. And over time, if it is a lengthy relationship with the learner, you can introduce this idea of SMART goals. I know I'm not very good at following the SMART goals thing, but I, I have colleagues who are program directors who every time they're in clinic with a with a learner, they ask for the goal and the, and the learner's right on talking about the, giving their goal in smart format. And you know, you have arrived when that has happened. And the learner has, it, it's not just an exercise for the learner. It is a lifelong practice of developing these goals and making incremental progress that helps everybody. Well, maybe we can return to Avery briefly, who may be early in their practice and, uh, I think the only thing they may have said to you, Calvin, is that they would like to improve their presentations. And you set up a meeting with Avery midway through the week and find a quiet place to meet. And just wondering how you would go about starting the feedback conversation, if you have any approaches for that process. Absolutely. Do you want to be Avery? We can do a, we can do a role play. Sure. Sorry to put you on the spot. I know. I know when people when I say role play, people are like ah, getting and maybe it'll be easier to demonstrate rather than just to talk about. If that's okay, Ira, would you mind? Yes, I would love to be Avery for a second. That sounds great. (laughs) And and I apologize. I realized I made an error earlier. I assumed Avery was using she pronouns, and it sounds like Avery uses they pronouns. So I need to make certain that I uh, adhere to that. In this particular case, Avery did yes. Great. So I All will. Right. I will now be Avery, and uh, um, yeah, go ahead. Um, so Avery, I am really looking forward to the next couple of weeks on inpatient service with you. Uh, I I, I want to get to know you some because uh, part of 
you getting better in your position as a medical student is to be the best medical student you can be. And I want to, I want to support that. Um, just tell me first something about you. I, uh, the only thing I know about you is your name and the fact that you said earlier that you use they, them pronouns. Thank you, Dr. Chow. Thank you for being such an incredible attending on my time here. I, I think that one thing to know about me is I'm really, I'm working on getting better just overall as a medical student. And one of the things I want to focus on is getting better in my oral presentations. And another thing that you might want to know about me is I love to run. Running is a uh, big part of kind of what fills my bucket up. Well, I'm glad you have physical activity as something that makes you fill up. Uh, I, I think um, that activity really helps the mind progress. And so I'm glad you have that in your life. The first thing that you said in terms of working on your oral presentations, uh, is there something about the oral presentations that you're trying to work on? I think I get a little bit uh, nervous in the delivery of my assessment and plan. I just feel like maybe I'm not quite where I need to be uh, specifically in that in that portion of the oral presentation. Okay. Uh, are those two separate things that nervous and delivery of the presentation and the assessment and plan, or do you get nervous with the assessment and plan? I think it might be both. Okay. So the nervousness, completely natural for a student. This is not something that you've done ever since you were a kid. This is something that is a series of skills that we can continue to work on over time. Uh, and so I hope that as we work on it, that, that then your sense of nervousness uh, will be replaced by confidence. And then in terms of the assessment and plan, this is also an area where many medical students struggle, if not all medical students. Because again, it's not something you've done ever since you were a kid. When you say assessment and plan, is there something there that you find that you particularly struggle with? I think sometimes it's just hard for me to consolidate the amount of information in CPRS that there is about all the patients. And I just, I worry that I'm missing things and I'm missing maybe details that you or the resident expect to hear about patients. So synthesizing information is definitely part of the assessment and plan. So as we move through the cases that you're following, we will, uh, we will pay attention to that. There are also, there's also a structure to the assessment and plan that I think may be helpful to you, an approach that may be helpful to structure your assessment and plan around, and that would be the summary one-liner problems in order of importance, and then your differential diagnosis, the, uh, di the diagnostic plan, and then the therapeutic plan. So if we think about that structure, maybe we can go over your presentation from earlier today or your note from earlier today, and we can apply this structure to that to that assessment and plan and see whether that makes sense to you. I think that would be great because no one has talked to me about that structure, and I know that my note does not have that structure. It's mostly just trying to consolidate the information that I have, and it probably doesn't do the best job of that. So let's look at your note and formulate it in terms of the structure and see how, how that feels to you. All right. Let me just go print that out. One of the computers of the VA. I, I think that, <laughs> that, yeah, that would be pretty <laughs> typical of a conversation that I'd have. It, it's in part set up for the relationship, and it's in, also in part teaching. 
And I liked how you really pushed her gently or pushed Avery gently to uh, kind of narrow down specifics and and didn't just kind of stop at, you know, I, I feel a little nervous giving my presentations or I struggle with synthesizing the information and and you really helped them come up with specifics that then helped you make recommendations for improvement. And using empathy liberally. Mm-hmm. Normalizing said, it. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I think that's, I think that's totally key because uh, for many medical students, they, they worry that they're the only one. Everybody else gets it except for me. As we all know, this is a very, very common stance, a common position for, for our learners. And Calvin, I've heard you mention a few times, I think in other settings, kind of the artful approach to the feedback conversation and wondering if you could maybe highlight in the role play that we just did or kind of as Molly was uh, alluding to specifics uh, in our conversation, maybe where those artful kind of techniques came in. Wow, Ira. Yeah, I wasn't conscious of it when I was doing this. Uh, This is uh, this is the to me, this phase is the setup of the conversation of the not just the setup of the conversation, the setup of the relationship between me and the learner, where I'm trying to present an environment that is conducive to learning. I want Avery to think that they, that I have their back when I'm developing their, uh, developing their skills. Uh, so I'm not as conscious of this artful approach and. In retrospect, I did use it. <laughs> so <laughs> ART stands for ask, respond, and teach. And so I would ask Avery, so tell me, for example, not having a transcript of the conversation, maybe misremembering, tell me about the nervousness or, or I think I said something about tell me about your nervousness. And she said, uh, presenting assessment and plan i asked her to clarify and then i and then the respond part was the normalization a lot of learners are in the same position as you um, in the nervousness and then the teach part is let's work together so that you can replace the nervousness eventually with confidence that is a teach piece that is less specific than i like to be when having the feedback portion of the conversation uh, it's more more me- this is more meant to be a um, aspirational or inspirational um, idea that I can instill in Avery's head that I am I'm gonna work with you to to help you feel more confident. Well, I will say that embodying Avery, I felt very cared about and kind of aligned with. And so I think that kind of focus on making sure that they know that they're cared about and that somebody's invested in their progress. And and also, as Molly mentioned, that normalization, like everybody is nervous and everybody is trying to consolidate the massive amount of data that's coming at them in these presentations. And I think kind of getting almost the action at the end, like, okay, let's go through it. Let's, let's look at the notes together. It was also, it felt empowering to me, like, yes, we're going to go do that. We're going to put everything we just talked about in this conversation into action. Yes. Uh, thank you for highlighting that era. I think it's really important that, well, first of all, it's, isn't it interesting that even in this fake role play that you still felt it, that's in in part the magic. There, there's a little bit of magic in role play, and even though it's contrived, there is some actual relationship development that was going on there, right? Uh, and the second thing, what was the second thing you said? The action piece, maybe. Oh yeah, right. So um, 
what comes to mind is that people listening to this may think, well, I could never take that long with a learner. This takes this takes forever. And I think if we timed it, it wouldn't be that long, number one. Number two is that for medical students, I do spend more time with them because I feel like I have the most to offer them. I'm an old guy. <laughs> I, I have this many more years of experience, and I want to make certain that I'm bringing this learner along. It's not that I think less of people who are who are more experienced. Um, I, I am I'm trying to identify as specifically as possible what the learners learning edges are, so I can address them. That is also true of uh, advanced learners, and I, I may spend a little bit less time kind of going into the enumeration of the components of the assessment and plan, for example. But it really didn't take very long. I mean, that was maybe two or three minutes, you know, and, and obviously you're very busy in clinic on rounds, but it's it's still very doable to fit into at the beginning of a relationship with a new learner. Absolutely. And the more that when you start this kind of conversation with a learner, that two or three minutes of investment is like gold because I mean, I can tell you learners that I've had at longitudinally in clinic or over a couple of weeks uh, on inpatient, um, I've heard them say things like, oh, you know, Calvin was my rock during a really hard time. And I don't intend to go on and be, you know, these people's rocks. Uh, I, I just want to support them in the best way that I can. And if, I, and if it is a place of stability, great. That is, that's my role. And then I, then I feel like I've succeeded. And maybe moving it along. So it's halfway through the week that you've been working with Avery and you're checking back in to, you know, they've been working on improving their presentations. They've sort of started to follow your structure. Um, how do you frame that, that conversation? Perfect. So let's say, so quote, midpoint feedback. <laughs> I suppose we could frame it that way. Um, so I think, uh, well, maybe we can frame this in two separate ways. One is in the moment feedback, and then the slightly more elaborate midpoint feedback conversations. So, um, for example, at let's say that even the next morning, Avery has done their presentation, and as we are walking from that, so so I wait for all of the clinical care part from the resident and the intern who's working with the medical student go, as we're walking to the next patient on rounds, I take Avery aside and I say, hey, tell me what you, tell me what you thought of your assessment and plan portion. I noticed you worked really hard on your, uh, on your assessment and plan portion. Tell me what you did effectively. I uh, felt like I really consolidated the physical exam findings from this morning into the assessment for Mr. Smith to really highlight that maybe they he did have a pneumonia. I loved the fact that you did that, taking these new physical exam findings that weren't there yesterday and incorporating them into your assessment of pneumonia is a it was a really really important step. I also noticed that you used this, the framework that we talked about yesterday, and I want to make certain that you keep doing that. I thought it was really effective. Thank so you. just that little bit, you know, it, it, it doesn't take any time. It doesn't take time away from rounds because we're walking to the next patient or, you know, they're talking about something else or they're looking at the telly or something like that. You know, I, I'm having a side conversation with Avery so that Avery knows that I'm there for them. And that, as you as you noted, that was only reinforcing feedback. 
uh, and I try to, particularly for early learners who feel the most unsteady about their confidence, I try to emphasize reinforcing feedback as much as possible, knowing that at least the business literature seems to suggest that the optimal ratio for uh, reinforcing versus modifying feedback is somewhere around four to one. And so I'm trying to, I'm, it's not like I'm counting. It's not like I'm saying one, two, three, four, finally I can give that piece of modifying feedback. You know, I'm, uh, I, I want to, the, the idea of four to one is that that's approximately the ratio where learners feel like you really do have their back. Um, and the other place where data like this is relevant is uh, in couples counseling, where the couples who stay, to, couples who stay together um, speak in five to one ratio, reinforcing and modifying. So <laughs> less than that, and maybe not so much. So this is, I often talk about feedback being, being people skills rather than communication skills. This is about relating to people. Uh, the other interesting thing that I read in the educational literature a while back is that if the ratio gets too high, like 11 to 1, then the learner starts tuning you out. They, they start thinking, oh, this person doesn't have anything to teach me. Um, so we really do have to bring the modifying feedback. A lot of people may feel less confident with the modifying feedback. And so it's even more important that we practice those modifying feedback pieces and not be scared of them because we've developed this relationship. We've spent time investing in the beginning of the relationship. And so when you're a learner, when we are having a feedback conversation involving modifying behaviors, your learner is ready to hear it and eager to do so because they know you have your their back. A very, very recent example of this is one of my mentees uh, has just finished a month of wards uh, at the VA, and uh, his two medical students are in this uh, medical student program that I run. And I want him to be the best resident he can be. This is his first, his first month on service. And I checked in with him and I said, how's it going? He goes, I think it's going great, uh, better, better than I expected. Um, and then I checked in with the learners and the learners saying, you know, you know, you know, he's so great. What would be even better is if he could give us something to push us on. And then I went back to my to my resident mentee and I said, you know, this is this is what your students want. I didn't just say that to him. I, I said, how's it going? <laughs> would you be open to a would you be open to a piece of feedback that I got from your two students? And he said yes. And I said, they really want you to push them. And I knew it happened. The the learner, the the students were really satisfied. The resident felt more empowered. And just today the student said about him. I loved him. He was so great. He not only supported us, he also pushed us to places that we needed to go. So it's it's striking that fine balance. That's a pretty amazing relationship that you were able to cultivate. Kind of a you were playing like the coach role, also the messenger role. That's pretty incredible. I wonder, Calvin, just to go back to your point about kind of in the moment feedback and this ratio, how do you practically titrate kind of giving that reinforcing versus redirecting or modifying feedback? Like, is it between four different patients that you walk and you kind of give a little, you sprinkle a little constructive here, a little reinforcing here, there, or how do you practically do that on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, <laughs> what a great question. I do not count. 
<laughs> because that, that's too much cognitive load. My, my brain isn't that big. Uh, I, I think actually it's more of a feel. If I notice that the learner is, I'm having lots of reinforcing feedback for the learner, then I need to bring it. I need to think of something that will get them better. Uh, and there is always something. I think one of the fears that we have is that for our high performing learners, we have nothing to teach them. Nothing further from the truth, right? If, if th there was nothing we could teach them, then could they take over for me? Yeah. No, right? So, how, so think, thinking about the high performing learner and the next stage, as they go into the next stage, what do they need to learn as a fourth year medical student? What do fourth year medical students need to learn as an intern? What do interns need to learn as a resident? What do residents need to learn as junior attendings? What do junior attendings need to learn as senior attendings? And I don't even know some of this stuff. You know, the, some of those things for very, very high performing learners become, uh, some of them are my, my own goals. And this is, again, the reason why we have, why it's so effective to have our learners enumerate their own goals, because if they are motivating themselves for the next step, then we don't have to necessarily keep on pushing them. They are pushing themselves and we are following them and thinking about areas where they could further improve in the areas that they would like to improve, not just the competency areas, but the aspirational levels to which they'd like to improve. So for a resident who is doing an amazing job teaching the medical students, I'll say uh, something about teaching at different levels. How can you teach effectively to your interns in the same way that you're teaching your third year medical students? And there's a whole bunch of competencies there, some of which are written and some of which, some of which are not. Some of those things may be teaching about evidence-based evidence medicine. Some of those things may be about supervision. Some of those things may be about accountability. Some of those things may be about professionalism. So there's many different areas where we can push our learners, even, even the most high-performing learners, into higher and higher places. Do you ever worry about kind of feedback fatigue and just learners feeling like they're constantly being judged and they're already very highly motivated? I mean, they've made it through medical school or whatever professional training they're in and they're adults. Um, does that, do you run into that much? Always, always, always. Um, so there's always much more information that I've logged that I could have a feedback conversation about that I don't. I always, I'm always trying to select the two or maybe three most important things on my list, knowing that it can never be perfect. If there's something that a learner is doing that I want them absolutely to stop doing, um, I'll choose that one. But if there are three things, I can't have a conversation about three different things that a learner needs to do differently immediately. They won't hear it. They will start to think that I don't have their back. They'll start to feel downcast because, oh, he thinks I'm doing terribly. So I choose the one or two most important things for modifying feedback. And I kind of have to let the other things go. Or I come back that or come back the next day or you know, the next week. If it is a recurrent issue, then I will bring it up. So this is one of those slippery slopes. I think a lot of us worry about. Um, if we if we don't have that feedback conversation, then uh, 
they're going to continue. Then, then saying nothing is reinforcing it. And there's only so much that we can do. At the top of the show, we were talking about the humility and the lack of perfection. Here we are. I think that's kind of a perfect segue to jump into the second case, which is more about corrective feedback. Um, so, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about really setting the stage and creating that relationship to help the learners feel engaged and feel supported and then how to give that um, helping them set their goals and then giving them that reinforcing feedback on things that you want to make sure they continue to do. But as you said, there are some times when we need to try to make sure they're not continuing to do certain things. Um, Ira, do you want to jump us into the second case? Yes. Thank you, Molly. So we have Amanda, who is an R2, who works with you in Continuity Clinic. And you notice that she has excellent relationships with her patients and goes above and beyond to help them in clinic. But her interactions with attendings and clinic staff have been challenging. She doesn't always accept attending suggestions for next steps. And a few of the staff have reported to management they don't feel comfortable working with her because she has been, quote, rude to them. You meet with her, and she reports things are going well in clinic. She says she feels confident as a R2 in her approach and doesn't feel that anything actually needs to change. And thinking about this case with Amanda, Calvin, I wonder in these conversations where it might be a bit more challenging and you really need to give that actionable uh, corrective feedback, but the learner seems to not have the insight on into that. How do you move forward with that type of conversation? Uh, challenging conversation because this is this is feedback that borders on not just interpersonal communication competency, but also maybe professionalism and maybe also practice-based learning and improvement. So if I frame the case in that way, the learner appears to be resistant to some of the information that maybe we're presenting Amanda with that, and that interactions with staff are perceived to be, quote, rude. So, so anytime we enter this professionalism space, there are always numerous perspectives to take into account. So the staff may perceive Amanda to be rude. And what what, what, is, what is that perception based on? Is it because of their implicit bias of a woman being more assertive? Is it uh, how, how much of this is based in their inferences of what's going on as opposed to the actuality of what's happening. So as much as I can, I try to get the primary data or have direct observation. If I'm if these things are being reported to me, let's say that Amanda is is one of the residents and I'm supervising and I'm hearing these reports from other attendings and the staff, if I'm not seeing this myself, then it's hard for me to say, well, you know, so and so attending said this, so and so staff said this. Then it becomes uh, one person said this and the other person said that, and then it be th then it becomes kind of a meaningless conversation. So uh, unless there are consistent themes across many different people, then it can be more challenging to have that kind of conversation. Now I, I know that for people who are supervisors and program directors and that sort of thing, it's impossible to get primary observation data for all of your learners. And so you really do require eyes and ears on the ground from from the supervising staff. And this is even more reason why supervising staff need really, really great 
observation and feedback skills so that they can have these conversations way before it gets up to the program director with these kind of vague accusations. So if it were up to me and the and the super as a supervisor and these people are coming to me, I would I would not have a feedback conversation with the attendings and the staff, but I would say, tell me exactly what happened. Tell me exactly what happened. And uh, so sort of registering that information. And then if possible, gathering ancillary data, corroborative data from my own eyes. So if Amanda has been presenting to me and and I'm offering something and Amanda says, you know, that, that I don't think that's what's happening at all, then I then I will notice that for myself, and then having a having a feedback conversation with Amanda. So we start out as you intimated. Um, tell me what's what's going effectively about your being in clinic, and she's saying I feel confident. I uh, I feel like I um, I don't feel like there's anything that needs to be changed, and I'll say that that's um, so, so I'm hearing that confidence is something that you um, that that is that is helping you in your performance in clinic. So notice that just by reflecting back to Amanda, the, the, Amanda's words to Amanda rather than, it, it's not tantamount to agreeing, I'm just reflecting back. So when I reflect back something, so and you, hear, you heard I, how I said, I said, so you feel that your confidence is really allowing you to you know, perform as an R2 or whatever I said, that by reflecting back, the learner gets a sense that I have heard them. I have heard what you have said. That is all I'm doing by this simple reflection. I'm not saying that I agree with it. Uh, and uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a trick that I have learned over time and that some of my astute learners have hit on. <laughs> they, they have noticed that if, uh, if I say, if I just repeat simply, do a simple reflection to them. Oh, so you think your assessment and plans have been pretty robust? <laughs> then, then they know that maybe I don't. Maybe they don't agree. But most po most folks won't 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 get won't go there. And just by the simple fact of reflecting what you heard, allows the learner to feel like you have heard them. And I feel like it's a natural self-reflection. You're like, oh my gosh, do I think that my assessment plans are really good? You're like, start to have to ask yourself, is that actually what you meant? Like, am I confident? You know, am I good at this? Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a really great point, Ira. Now, for the learner who may not have that great insight, they may not have, they they may not go there. Um, and if I'm repeating it back to them, and they hear their words through my mouth, they may start to wonder. So I think I think that's a really great point. Unfortunately, the medical education literature suggests that learners, uh, that low performing learners have a higher sense of their own performance um, and higher performing learners have a lower sense of their performance. So this insight thing, actually, I'm not certain about insight, truthfully. I think it's more about um, uh, defending one's own honor. You know, if one has a sense that one is not doing that great, uh, the only way that they can kind of build themselves up is to start to say, well, maybe I'm doing better than I think I am, because otherwise, if I, if I say I'm doing terribly, then where am I? I think your yeah. comment, though, allows for like someone's ego to be balanced with their ability to critically self-reflect. And you can kind of see, you can almost get 
your own insight as the feedback giver about which one of those is taking priority? Like, is it that honor defending and that ego? Or is it kind of, oh, wow, they are actually taking a second to self to reflect about what I just said to them or how I reflected their words to them? Yes. Are they defending? You know, do they have this big armor on uh, or are they receiving what I'm saying? And I think this is where authenticity on our part is so important because if I am really trying my best to help them, I, I think they feel it. Totally. So, uh, sorry, I waxed poetic a little, a little bit there about about high and low performing learners. Um, if we get back to the particular case where I'm reflecting back what I just heard, then the next phase is the modifying feedback conversation where I'll say something like, uh, would you be open to something that I've heard? And usually if I have never had a learner at this point say, no, I'm done. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm just asking permission. Would you, would you be open to something that I heard? And then I will say, so one of the things that I've heard from the attendings and the staff is about your interactions with them. I wonder if you can reflect some on how you're interacting with the attendings and the staff and and why they might approach me saying that that you seem defensive. So when we're in the realm of feedback about professionalism, one of the most important aspects of it is the ability to is to take perspectives of others. So this question is very is specific. Why do you think they would say this? And um, it's it, it, it sometimes is even powerful if it's non-pandemic times and I'm sitting in a room with the learner and the learner doesn't have a sense of what that might be. I might even actually physically ask Amanda, uh, Amanda, I'm going to have you sit in my chair and I'm going to sit in your chair. So now that you're sitting in my chair, from my standpoint, what what comes to mind? Oh, I love that. So they're physically taking the perspective of you or of another yes. member of the staff. Yes. Sometimes it requires a little bit of theater. You love the role playing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the musical theater. I'm surprised yes. you're not asking them to sing their self-reflection. You don't want me to sing. <laughs> I love that. One thing I noticed that you mentioned, Calvin, is kind of at the very beginning of your answer and your approach is the the almost the competencies that you're noticing. It's like you're localizing the lesion for yourself. And I just really wanted to highlight that practice because you clearly said, okay, there's practice-based learning issues, there's professionalism issues. And I wonder, is that something that you're unconsciously competently doing uh, when you're about to give this type of feedback? Or yeah, how did that come into your approach? I think it helps me to think about the competencies that are involved. And if I can get a general sense for the area that I'm working in, and I don't exactly know how to go about it, then I can look at the School of Medicine milestones and and, and maybe use more specific and standardized information to be able to base some of the feedback um, that I w- want to have a conversation with. You notice that you, you see how I really danced around saying giving feedback right there. <laughs> yeah, I did. But you know, I also noticed you use the word standard because I do feel like going back to your definition of feedback, if you know that there's a certain standard, certain competencies, milestones, 
and that learner knows that you're orienting your feedback relative to those milestones, I think it's a little bit more orienting for them to know that when they have this conversation, you're not just like, well, this is from the Calvin School of Medicine practice. It's kind of, uh, which is a great school. I'd much rather be at Cashlack, yeah. <laughs> but there's also this other school that came up with these other competencies, and that's kind of where you know, you're honing your feedback, uh, giving to, or so conversing I, to. I think both. I think that there, there notice that the definition of feedback that I quoted earlier has nothing about objective. So this is objective uh, standards. My own feeling is a standard. And so if I have a precepting encounter with Amanda, and there's a point at which she is rejecting what I am saying, even though what I know is correct. Now, there are many times when I when I say when I what I say is absolutely incorrect or definitely not just open but receptive of correction. <laughs> many many different times. But if there's something that I'm, you know, we we've just gone into the room with the patient and I have and we have examined something together, and I come out of the room and I say, you know, that that looks like an AK, and she says, no, it's not. It is it's acne, then that is useful information for a feedback conversation at the end of the day, where I will say to Amanda, uh, I would love to sit down with you for a moment and speak about that uh, interaction that we had earlier. You remember when we saw Mr. N with uh, what I thought was an actinic keratosis and you thought it was acne. And this May I preface this? May I preface this all by saying, you know, this is in the context of a relationship that Amanda and I would have had over time, um, rather than just landing this modifying feedback in the moment. I actually, um, I, I felt quite strongly that that looked like an actinic keratosis to me. And when you said, "No, it's not. It's acne," in front of the patient, I felt quite uncomfortable. I think that's great, sort of bringing it back to to your experience of it, and not. Not just saying you were wrong, I'm right, I'm the attending, and you need to listen to me, but but really kind of putting it in that perspective. And that my sense, uh, my my emotion is a standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. It's it feels almost like a, I mean, not to use the words again, but like a subjective objectivity. But I, I do feel like your experience, as Molly just mentioned, is kind of being highlighted there as well. This is what I'm referring to. This is what I'm orienting my feedback based on. And that is an event. And that also highlights that the importance of the relationship and the emotions that happen between a feedback giver and a feedback receiver in that moment. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. One thing I also wanted to highlight that you brought up earlier, Calvin, is um, you know following up on hearsay feedback and kind of the bias, implicit bias that you had mentioned kind of can flow into feedback conversations. And obviously, this is a bigger topic than we can cover today. But I do wonder, and you've mentioned a few skills already, how you minimize bias and feedback. You know, you had even mentioned, like, is this woman being perceived as rude, but is assertive? And uh, I just wonder what other techniques you mentioned collecting primary data you use to minimize bias in feedback. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, one of the truisms about bias is that we don't know our own biases, right? <laughs> it's hard to know our own biases. Uh, and so this is, again, where humility reigns supreme, is that I may I only see the world through the lens of my own experiences. 
So when I said at the top of the show, I said, I'm a gay Asian dad. Uh, those are my experiences. And I don't know what it's like to be a brown woman in medicine. I don't know what it's like. And so the only way that I can start to understand those perspectives is by asking and approaching with curiosity and humility what people's experiences are. So if Amanda is a woman of color in medicine, I want to know <laughs> before I make these accusations, you know, the staff say that you're rude. I want to know what her experiences are first, well before I land anything, you know, using the rude word. That's one. The second is that oftentimes our minoritized learners experience stereotype threat. You may have done things on stereotype threat before. It's an anxiety state where people inhabiting a certain identity are afraid that they may reinforce the stereotypes of that identity. So a brown woman of color in medicine, minority times two in the medical field, they may already feel like they don't belong. And this is work that's been validated over and over again by Claude Steele, who is a psychologist at University of California, Berkeley. Um, and what he found was that, first of all, that there is a reproducible 10 to 15% decrement in performance on the basis of just having stereotype threat. So that's number one. And that a way to mitigate stereotype threat is by validation. And what is validation but reinforcing feedback? So I really try to emphasize the reinforcing feedback and not just reinforcing feedback for the sake of reinforcing feedback, really authentically saying, I really appreciated what you did here because I, you know, I, I want to make certain that you hear this. It's important that you introduce yourself every single time to a patient and shake their hand or, you know, like, well, whatever we do in pandemic times, you know, fist bump, that it's really important that you do that as a practice. I noticed that you do that every single time and it's, and it's really, really important. And even though it seems very, very small, that first impression of any relationship is probably the most important piece of any relationship. And so I want to make certain that everybody's starting off on the right foot. So awareness of one owns implicit bias, uh, using curiosity rather than judgment, and validation in the form of reinforcing feedback. And then the final thing that helps with stereotype threat, at least, is high standards. And this is something that can be introduced in that feedback setup at the very beginning of a relationship, just to say something like, you know, I, um, uh, I want you to be the best possible resident medical student that you can be, and I'm going to support you to get there. And you know, I, I, uh, I'm really committed to you. you. I'm really committed to your success. I think those are all great tips when working with any learner and they, you know, especially apply in, in learners that may be under the pressures of stereotype threat, but also just coming at it with curiosity and coming at it with humility, as you've been saying, and, and just really coming at it with an open mind and partnering together to move forward. I, I think that's a great sum up. In the interest of time, I, I think this has been just such a wonderful conversation. We've covered a ton. Ira, any last questions that you have? I think uh, I would love to hear kind of Calvin's obviously take home points, but I think what I'm struck by and everything that you've been mentioning is just the power of relationships in this dialogue and how feeling seen, feeling heard, feeling like that person matters is instrumental in having a successful inefficient feedback dialogue. And I wonder if there's times where 
you have had to advise learners about a feedback dialogue with someone else who's maybe higher in the hierarchy, if we we're talking about the hierarchy of medicine, um, and just kind of best practices there. But it, I also know that if we don't have time, we don't have to go through that. But that's something that I would love an expert opinion about. So when a learner needs to have a feedback conversation with a superior, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Tricky, tricky situation because particularly if um, it, that supervisor is in an evaluative capacity over the whoever the learner happens to be, it, it can be, I was going to say dicey. It is dicey and it also may be threatening, literally threatening to their position. They may get a lower grade, they may get fired, you know, all kinds of things like that. So reprisal is a very real potential consequence of feedback going up the hierarchy uh, and so must be managed with great care. So number one, I think so much of this rests in the supervisor. If the supervisor has a stance of openness and humility and uh, receptivity to feedback, then I think those kinds of conversations are lubricated. I know that when I am on, when I come on service, and I have my initial little salvo about feedback, I'll say, uh, feedback is something that's very, very important to me, uh, and I hope it's important to you because it's the only way I know how to get better. And so, what I want, no, I, what I need from each one of you is, by the end of the rotation, I would like you to tell me something that I can do differently because. When I have heard from learners what, something that I can do differently, it has literally changed my practice and made me better. And so when I start off with that expectation that by the end of the rotation, they're going to tell me a piece of feedback that I need to hear because I don't know about it, it's my blind spot, then it makes feedback up the chain expected. And it gets to the point now where some of my learners are really disappointed. I know I was supposed to tell you something and I can't. And, you know, th that's, that's actually a good outcome from my standpoint. I don't, I don't love to hear modifying feedback um, to me and I need to hear it, right? So it's, one of the, it's, it's that both and kind of thing. Um, so if the supervisor is not forthcoming like that, I think it's really tricky. This is where the learner or the subordinate needs to have allies so that the supervisor can hear that information from a colleague a same level colleague or a, a supervisor of their own. And we all know that supervisors who don't receive feedback well don't last. Well, they, they unfortunately do last a long time and they are known as poor supervisors. And if that's the reputation they want to walk around with, then, well, okay. I don't think anybody really wants to walk around with a bad reputation. So yeah. this is this is this is where power and hierarchy really rear their ugly head in these conversations, and it make it makes it challenging. And so the the more that we as supervisors can model humility and openness to feedback, the better we all are. I mean, I think that's a highlight for us in the series doing the faculty development component that we are trying to also become better feedback receivers as well, in addition to feedback givers. And what I'm hearing is almost like. Feedback is a gift, and you love that. You, that's something that's integral to who Calvin is, and that fact that you tell learners, you know, this is something that I would love to hear from you. That other learners have changed my practice. It kind of gives the weight and the power of of their input and their words too. So I really, really like that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually don't even I, I don't even say I would love to hear it. I need to hear it. <laughs> I need to hear it. Right? I have a feedbackpedia. It's a feedback deficiency. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, will, I will also say that when you know when the learner is formulating their modifying feedback for me, I'm sitting there and I'm sweating and wow. I'm really <laughs> uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, here it comes, here it comes. And, <laughs> and I try to keep you know a, an impassive face, like you know, bring it on. And in, inside, I'm just cringing. Because it's it's egotistonic information. <laughs> We're all like this, and and imagine that every time I'm having a modifying feedback conversation with my learner, they're feeling the same way. Yeah, I, I think as the supervisor, as the teacher, so important to set that stage. And one tip that I uh, read while I was preparing for this was to share your goal with the learners while you're having them share yours, just to kind of, um, you know, set that stage of I'm in, I'm in an improvement process as well as you are, and I need your help and you need my help. And we're working on this together. Yeah. Except for me, because I'm perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Joke, be JK, JK. Yeah. Well, this has been so great. What what take home points do you want our listeners to remember and and really carry forward? Um, yeah, uh, th- everything that I've said is so important. <laughs> uh, maybe if I can boil it down. Um, well, the first thing is to have a setup conversation where uh, you can elicit goals from the learner. The second thing is thinking about feedback as a conversation rather than a download. So getting away from giving feedback and having having a dialogue. The third thing is using empathy liberally. And I think the fourth thing is reinforcing feedback can be a validation for people experiencing potentially stereotype threat or imposter syndrome, close cousin to stereotype threat. Uh, and then the fifth thing, sorry, there are so many. <laughs> like, no, that's I have an infla- inflated sense of my own importance here. And the fifth thing is that practicing modifying feedback, maybe with a peer before you actually have that conversation can be really, really helpful and make certain that you feel comfortable with those modifying feedback conversations because our learners need to hear them. Wonderful. Anything else that you want to plug? Any um, Twitter handle or websites or book that you've recently written? (laughs) Well, what is my Twitter handle? Dr. Calvin Chow is my Twitter handle. (laughs) I I, I don't think I've been on it for a little while, so I I need to do that. There is one thing that I do want to plug, and that is that we are working on the second edition of our Remediation in Medical Education book. Uh, This is um, seven years in coming. And uh, one of the reasons that I'm starting to think in competencies is because, well, I think about remediation in medical education as feedback on steroids. And the way we organize the book is by competency in, in the remediation pieces. And in addition to remediating medical students, which was the focus of the first book, uh, now in the last seven or eight years that remediation has been around, there's been a huge explosion of information and data. And so we're in this book, we're incorporating not just UME perspectives, but also GME and faculty development and international and interprofessional. So we're wanting this to be a book that's very, very useful to all learners of all kinds across the globe and hoping that we can affect the way that our learners can continue to learn most optimally. Very exciting. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back when it's coming out and we can do an episode on remediation. (laughs) Feedback on steroids. Yes. 
so Calvin left me with a lot of pearls that I really want to try to put into practice, but one that I'm going to commit to try in the next week or two is in with my learners who are struggling to find their goals. Um, I love that idea of actually pulling out the course objectives and saying, hey, which of these do you feel like you need to work on more? And I think kind of giving that sort of objective menu could be really helpful in kind of um, guiding the, the discussion around setting goals. I love that, Molly. And I would agree. I think my uh, one of my big take homes from today is just how relationship centered the conversation about feedback is and I love that Calvin talked about making it clear that there's an alliance between you and the learner and I think I just with every feedback conversation I have this week I want to make it clear that I have the learners back that I am there for them and committed to their success and I'm going to highlight that every time I have or start a feedback conversation making sure it's clear that they're not just a tourist in their learning environment, but they are here and they are deliberately here. And I'm going to be their coach and kind of committed to their success on this uh, on this pathway. Awesome. Well, this has been another episode of the Curbsiders Teach, bringing you a little dose of edutainment. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com backslash teach. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A special thanks to Matt Watto and Paul Williams for supporting us in this Curbsiders mini-series and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Nerdly for editing our audio. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at thecurbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. Have a good night. Bye.